Hello and welcome to another episode of Pearson's View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. On today's podcast, I have an icon of progressive science pedagogy from the UK, Mr. Adam Robbins. Adam is a well-respected and knowledgeable practitioner who for 20 plus years has been committed to understanding how students learn most effectively, especially in science. He has held many different roles in schools. He is a published author and he is a founding member of the Active Science Teaching Group, COGSISI. Adam regularly contributes thoughtful ideas to help teachers across the UK and beyond deliver our jam-packed science curriculum. There are so many gems to discover within this wide-ranging conversation. So without further ado, let's hear Adam's view from the lab. Hi Adam, afternoon and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Hi Andy, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. Uh, now I'm interviewing Adam at the tail end of the uh, the 2023 uh, academic year. So um, Adam is on his, on his day off in inverted commas from school, um, but he will be finishing uh, very soon. And um, to give us a bit of context, where are you teaching at the moment, Adam? What area of the, of the UK are you based? Yeah, so I teach in uh, a lovely seaside town called Bognor Regis on the south coast between Portsmouth and Brighton. Uh, it's famous for its uh, seaside fair and um, clown festival and all sorts of embarrassing punchlines by stand-up comedians and things like that. Uh, I know. And is it, is, is, am I right in saying that there is also a, uh, a well-known Butlins in the area? Oh, yeah. Everyone loves the Butlins. <laughs> yeah, that is what I know about Bognor Reach. I, I think I must have visited at one point, but I can't, I can't remember a lot about it. It reminds me, perhaps, of my hometown. I grew up on the south coast as well, so it's pretty, it, ha- it sounds like it's got a similar a similar vibe, uh, Bognor Reach, to where I grew up. So um, let's get started off with, as I like to do, is to talk about your kind of science uh, teacher journey really and hear a little bit about um, going back to when you were a pupil really and any reflections you have uh, in kind of your your time in schools I know that may be a distant memory to you but is there anything that kind of uh, kind of occurs to you and think this is what it was like at my at my school and this is my my experience anything you'd like to share on that just to kick us off yeah so um I was actually the new kid in my class for about about nine months because I, I started on the 8th of September. So we moved area. My dad was in the Navy. We moved area. So um, I, I fought really hard to go to the school I wanted to go to um, for the really sensible reason, the fact they had a basketball team and I really wanted to play basketball. I didn't care about the fact that it was objectively the worst school for tens of miles. Um, so my, yeah, my education was, I suppose, fairly poor, I would say. You know, in retrospect, looking back, I don't think our school did things particularly well I love my time at school you know like everyone did but I think if you look back with a modern lens about what people knew about teaching at the time the standards in the school you know the the tolerance of kind of poor behavior and things like that um I was one of those good kids in the in the top set so I just was allowed to get on and do whatever I wanted to which was mainly drawing maps to Resident Evil 2 in the back of my English book that's kind of one of the most vivid memories I have um but I was fortunate you know I'm quite good at academics i suppose so i was able to uh to do all right at school in spite of my incredible lack of effort i suppose okay so kind of a mixed picture and i guess i, I suspect even today there are not many schools that are offering basketball as a well a team sports with some some more than others but it's not something that in the, in definitely in my experience of schools they uh, are doing i don't know if your school is uh, has that is it filled that gap would you say not anymore no unfortunately um it's always with the staffing, wasn't it? I used to be the basketball coach at our school when I joined, but you just don't have the time for it anymore. No, it's it's it's, it's very busy, and um, 
And you started uh, teaching similar time to me, actually. I guess you started teaching. Was it like in a mid mid uh, decade of the two thousands, just after the uh, millennium? I guess is that the kind of time period you were you embarked? Yeah, I literally started first of July uh, two thousand three because I've literally just clocked over onto year twenty. Right. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I was one of those people that started their NQT year. Then that's when I started my NQT year. And um, obviously, I mean, I've spoken to you. I kind of know a little bit about your your kind of early story. And you, you said in the past that um, one of one of the things that uh, kind of got you into teaching, in a sense, was the incentives when you started your, your teaching career. So um, obviously, you talk a lot about set incentives at the moment because we seem to have, you know, twenty years on the same problem we had. Uh, in terms of uh, obviously recruiting science teachers and also um, obviously retrain, uh, retaining science teachers as well. So what was it that got you into the kind of the, the enclave of teaching? What what was the incentive for you? Yeah, I just think um, I was at a, a loose end. I'd just graduated. I thought I was going to go into scientific research. It turns out I didn't quite have the kind of literacy for it. I was really struggling with the kind of academic papers and stuff like that. I did okay. Um, but it wasn't enjoyable for me. So um, I thought um, I needed something to keep me busy. So I applied to do the PGC. Because at the time I thought um, no matter what happened, you know, if a teaching qualification is always a good qualification to have. doesn't matter if you don't actually go on to teach very long. And I think, you know, I was thinking maybe down the line if I was a parent and I had a better understanding of the school system than when I needed to support my children through their school and I could maybe complain from a a point of expertise instead of just being you know um, a painful parent maybe. And um, when you started your kind of I guess PGC at NQT year was there anything that kind of surprised you because I remember when I went back to what I call would just be a normal normal school and I think when you go away to university obviously you're surrounded by um, a certain type of you know intellectual standard i guess and 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 you forget about the kind of the the broad spectrum of learners you have in just a normal normal school is there anything that you kind of um jumped out at you when you went back into schools after being in kind of obviously more of an academic university environment which is is of course is very different to to many schools yeah so i did my training in nottingham which i'd never been to before um and i trained at a school called the alderman white school which was really friendly and um, it was a languages college so it had it offered like six or seven different language gcse's and things like that and i started teaching and uh, my first lesson to prepare was all about acids and i started off with the sentence as we know all acids are proton donors and uh, the look on my <laughs> look on my um uh, mentor's face was probably one that said i probably should have checked this lesson plan before i let him get started um but uh, yeah, the curse of knowledge is strong with all of us. And I think to that day, I've always remembered that, you know, just because it seems obvious, it doesn't mean it's necessarily where everyone else is. Yeah. So you're not going to say that was a year seven lesson now, are you? Or... No, nowadays, I would start very much at the opposite end of the spectrum, I think. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's good. It's kind of, as you say, that the curse of the expert and uh, the, the, the assumption, I think one thing you do learn from teachers is that everything, everyone's, sorry, being doing any sort of teaching is you always it always reveals to you that everyone's got a different picture of what you've said to them in their in their mind and obviously part of the teacher's job is to try and un- unpick that recognize that and, and see where the misconceptions may be especially in science so it's um it's you know it's a good it's a good life skill to have i think anyway now you've obviously been teaching a significant amount of time um and you've said at the beginning there that you know teaching today is very different and rightly so than it was when uh, you or i were being taught in in, in schools uh, in england um 
what are the things can you remember any kind of markers because i've put down in my notes here you know what changed at 5 10 15 and kind of now in terms of 20 years can you reflect back on i guess some of the fads maybe of things that you've seen going from when you trained to those kind of markers roughly isn't be obviously specific but what kind of things have you seen as you've gone through your teaching career that you think were perhaps good ideas bad ideas just a reflection on that yeah sure um let's take a uh, so first of all, when I first started, we used to use mini whiteboards. That was quite, that was quite useful. We didn't use them very well, um, and so they they kind of fell out of fashion. Uh, they stayed in primary schools, but in secondary schools, they kind of fell out of fashion, become a bit logistical, uh, logistically difficult. Um, but you also used to get loads of praise for doing kind of unusual things. So I've had lessons where kids had to you know, make a rap verse on, you know, uh, geothermal technology, or there was always this idea at the beginning that the content was inherently dull and the teacher's job was to make it interesting. Otherwise, the students rightfully shouldn't pay any attention to it. Like, why would they? You know, they're we're in the new millennium for crying out loud. There's this thing called the internet. You know, they can just look up all their information. So you had to make it kind of edutainment, for want of a better phrase. So you used to do all sorts of weird stuff. Um used to bring a, a hand puppet in uh, to be like an expert in uh, genetic engineering. Um, we used to do all sorts of crazy things. We used to do a lesson on DNA, and the whole lesson was just using a straw and cocktail sticks to make a double helix. That was that was basically the lesson. Um, and then kind of that moved on a little bit. And in my school, we moved across to, um, I think as a way probably to try and control what was quite difficult behavior, um, kind of student choice. So I was having trouble with a year 11 class I was teaching and, and the advice from the LEA expert was to think of the lesson a bit more like a menu. Think of it like a restaurant and, you know, what they could do three options at the beginning of the lesson, five options in the middle and, and kind of two for dessert. And as long as they picked the ones they wanted to, by giving them this choice, they would uh, be better behaved. And I suppose there is some logic to that. Like if you like a magician's choice is quite a useful strategy in education uh, where students feel like they're in control of things, it's quite a useful thing to do. It was just a very, very, very logistically difficult thing to get right because you had to create so many resources uh, and none of them were particularly useful because they all had to be done completely independently because you couldn't provide support for these things. You know, you used to get told off for talking for more than two minutes as a teacher and things like that. And then that kind of shifted away, I suppose. So about 10 years ago, it would have been the murky waters where the kind of um, vocational education came to the forefront and um, granular progress became an idea. And so teachers were talking about success criteria, which again is not a bad idea on the surface, but it was about kind of monitoring the student's progression through these success criteria. Uh, every student being able to generate kind of subgrades progress, sublevels progress through um, all sorts of different things. And then kind of five years ago, everything starts changing, really. If you think about then, then, you know, things like Rosenstein's principles and things like cognitive load theory are just starting to kind of come to the forefront. And in the last five years, there's been a huge shift towards understanding the process of learning. And while we maybe don't have a full picture and there are critics of cognitive load theory and there are critics of uh, modern teaching, as there as there should be critics of teaching at all times, because it's a very complicated issue. I do feel that we have a much more kind of generalizable theory of how students learn best, and we can quite easily 
use that theory and, and look at tasks and say, do we think this task is going to possibly help students or is it possibly going to hinder them? And when we kind of look back and reflect on the last 15 years that went before it, and we can kind of face palm and, and feel really quite really quite sorry for ourselves and the kind of things we did in the classroom, I think. Yeah, a lot of the things you're talking about there, I did recognize in terms of the the way the way things change, the way, as you say, um, there was a period of time where, as you mentioned, you weren't or it was seen as you shouldn't be speaking to your class for that long. Uh, and you had to get them moving on an activity and say with a, with a degree of choice, which which I guess um, is, as you said, you know, there are some advantages to that, but it's very obviously difficult to monitor progress of, you know, the whole class doing three different worksheets, perhaps, or three different activities. And, you know, as a science teacher, um, I don't think I ever cracked being able to do three different nuanced practicals within one lesson. I think there, there are particular challenges there when when you're looking at um, uh, the way that, that there's something's delivered. And, and obviously, the, the way things are moving now are perhaps more of a uh, literally a scientific way of uh, approaching learning and trying to move away from kind of, I guess, faddy ways of thinking about learning and perhaps looking a bit more evidence-based. I guess the EEF also had a um, uh, influence, would you say, on that side of things? Yeah, I think the EEF have generally been a, a force for good. I've had the opportunity through Darlington Research School to deliver some of their courses, like the Improving Secondary Science course. And so I've, I've spent quite a bit of time looking at the EEF and I I know some of the people that work at the EEF uh, really, really well and have, have seen some of their work, um, specifically Bob Pritchard, who did some work on uh, worked examples. I thought that was really nice. And uh, Nikki Kaiser's work on the um, uh, CLT review that they did, you know, with a large, large team of people went through all the academic literature for cognitive load theory and tried to find out what was the best bets and advise on the um, new dreaded um, ITT framework. Um but um, I think what's coming through all this is just an idea that we know what was more likely to work and we can get a bit caught up in the details sometimes, but there's a lot of surface validity. If you were to put two tasks together and task A was a task from 10 years ago and task B was a task that maybe people had designed recently and you just went to teachers all around the world and said, which one do you think will help students learn more? I think the majority of them would be able to see that, oh, I've done this kind of task B before and it's been really effective. I didn't know why it worked, but I knew that that was a good thing to do. Whereas task A, I've tried that before and it only works with my top set or it only works with my low ability students. It's much, its degree of difficulty is just so much higher, I think. So it's not that students can't learn in other ways. It's just we want to try and make it as efficient as possible and as easy as possible. And how do you how do you feel about um, so when you talk about things like uh, or when I think about things like direct instructions as a science teacher you had or, or I used to have obviously a variety of different sets I know some some schools don't set at all uh, these days I was speaking to a teacher recently who their school didn't particularly do that but often the places I, I taught were setted and I always found it was difficult to I guess hold the attention of uh, lower attaining students and you would be able to speak to maybe a um, a higher attaining set for example you know your top set. And the degree to which you can do direct instruction or do you think that's actually direct instruction can do be, be done very well at any level you just have to maybe you need to simplify it even more to, to get it across any thoughts on kind of the different approaches you might take with different um attending students on that front yeah i think any kind of if we're talking about like full capital D, capital I, kind of Engelman level precision of direct instruction, there's tons of evidence to suggest that the lowest attainers actually do the best. 
because there is less confusion. Um, a lot of people are talking about kind of what uh, we would call, yeah, the small DI or explicit instruction or this idea of teacher-led lessons. Mm. I think it's the idea of chunking lessons and the idea of breaking things into manageable chunks. I think the key word there is it being manageable. And I, I spent this last year teaching two very low ability classes in year 11, um, kind of quite disenfranchised students. And they found definitely the lessons where I delivered in a controlled and kind of sustainable drip feeding kind of approach of small chunks that were easy to follow. They were the lessons that they found um, the most successful, I think, um, because I could tailor my explanation to their prior knowledge. And because they'd all come from different sets over the last couple of years, and this was the first time I was teaching them, I was just picking them up. I think where it breaks down is when teachers don't adequately audit the prior knowledge of the class and don't establish that prerequisite knowledge that they need to take this next step and don't have the kind of confidence in their own instincts to delay the lesson maybe to fill some of those gaps so that the students can then take the next step. We have a, a bit of a perverse incentive to make each lesson a lesson, if you see what I mean, where it takes the hour, they come in, they do it, it finishes and we move on. And from my experience, that that often doesn't work. And those and those lower those lower attaining sets generally, do you take the decision because there is a lot of content in science, of course, and that's what teachers uh, tell us all the time at, at Pearson Ed Excel. Do you intentionally decide to take some things out and not teach everything for lower attaining and make sure they know the critical uh, key ideas, perhaps, or do you try and still squeeze, you know, um, as much as you can in with, with with those sets, or do you think it's better to to make them confident in, let's say it's in chemistry and they really, really know how to calculate MR, but maybe you don't do something, even in the foundation tier, it's a bit more challenging. Or How do you approach that? Yeah, so I think it's really important that the curriculum is sequenced properly so that the fundamental concepts are covered first. And then I tend not to prioritise curriculum completion over curriculum kind of comprehension, I suppose, for want of a alliterative phrase. Um, so I think it's really important to make sure I spend disproportionately more time on the fundamental basics that will secure those students a fundamental knowledge than some of the other things. And I've also discovered that that means I can still cover those things, but I don't need as much time to cover them because often the time was taken reteaching the concepts they didn't have before. So if we we're thinking of the GCSE as a two-year journey, then you know in chemistry specifically, you should spend a disproportionately long amount of time on bonding. Because if students don't comprehend bonding at all, then there's literally the time you're spending on electrolysis is essentially mostly wasted or mostly forcing them to learn it through rote memorization instead of actual kind of understanding of what's going on. So you can often feel when you're teaching in year 10, like you're, you're really behind schedule because you're kind of keeping up, um, but you're trying to make sure that you get these fundamentals. But what you find is by year 11, if you've kept that class for two years, those fundamentals that have been established allow for kind of an acceleration of the teaching. And I, I prefer to teach through a kind of booklet model as well that allows students that have understood those things to always kind of take more time, get more practice in areas that are a bit more difficult. And other students can spend more time working on the fundamentals at the end of their kind of independent practice. And do you, in your school particularly, you talked about kind of the two-year two GCSE, do you uh, aim to try and get the same teacher to teach you know both those years i guess and and those and those particular sets 
And I guess, I I don't know how it works in your school, obviously staffing obviously will affect this, but ideally, would you say, I'm going to take this class in year 10 and I'm going to take them all the way through year 11. And um, my sub question to that is, yeah, do you you teach in specialism? How do you you divide it up in your your school to try and maximise the, you know, the understanding for those students? So we've tried a few different models in the last few years. Uh, We had a model... Um, where the curriculum allowed us to have three teachers teaching in specialism and this and the classes were split into thirds essentially so yeah. each class had three teachers um, and then um, we moved to curriculum model and re- recently we've been doing just a single teacher teaching all three sciences to a class I'm not I think in all these cases heads of department can spend quite a lot of time worrying about which is the right choice and I think it's more about which is which is the right choice for the the compensation retraining you can put in place. So if you're rotating your teachers through, they're only teaching in specialism, that's a check for subject knowledge that makes their teaching easier. But the time they spend with the students is less. So maybe there's more that needs to be done on kind of establishing routines uh, universally through the department and making sure the students understand that there's not just like a, a poor relation teacher that is, uh, you know, oh, everyone just hates that teacher, so it's fine. We can we can mess about in those classes, and that affects so many classes. Then, so I think there's different choices people make with them. Heads of department, I do like having teachers in specialism as much as possible because I feel like subject knowledge is one of the big levers in terms of making someone a great teacher. And I think repetition of lessons really helps teachers with their workload. But I can see the arguments for for other ways as well. Yeah, I was thinking they're both the, um, you know, the curse of the expert becoming really good at obviously teaching, you know, chemistry, biology, physics, perhaps, um, and forgetting that. But if you're still kind of being consciously thinking about, of course, your, of course, your learners, um, that subject knowledge obviously does does really help in the, in a lot in a lot of cases um, in, in in many schools. And you've you've I believe you taught, I guess, because um, you you know been teaching why you probably have taught all the you know biology, chemistry, physics. Um, and you've you've had a level teaching. Is there any? Do you think there's a particular one that is more difficult than the other to teach, having experienced all, all of those three? And obviously, you've got probably a preference to your particular favourite science or sciences. Any thoughts on you know subject choice and, and difficulty? I think it's interesting because um, the hardest thing I've ever done is is when I had to transfer across to start teaching A level physics. That was a big task and, and took a lot of effort and. The level of precision that you need to be an excellent physics teacher is just something that I think is really, really difficult to master. Like the level of discussion that goes on about terminology that's being used, examples that are being used, the specificity of language. I know physics teachers get um, a kind of short stick sometimes for being very pedantic with language and being very, oh, actually... But um, when you really get into the nitty gritty of it, I never think I appreciated that until maybe the last kind of five or six years, just how important it is to be so precise with your language. I don't think it's necessarily the hardest to teach. I think chemistry is probably the hardest to teach because you're teaching both sides. You've got the kind of quant stuff, which is very mathematical, very procedural. And then you've got the kind of um, declarative knowledge of all the organic and, you know, all the periodic table stuff. So it's kind of, both sides of the science whereas biology is more that declarative side and physics is more that procedural side so i think chemistry is probably the hardest to teach well but i really appreciate physics teachers and their expertise a lot more than i did when i first started and um 
taking taking a ch- slight change of direction, thinking about so you're talking about teaching before and teaching obviously different types of science sciences. One of your, um, uh, I guess you call it a passion project. Pro- project I don't know. Um, Cogsci-Sci uh, is an uh, organisation, obviously, that is uh, sprung up over the last few years. Could you tell us a bit about how that that started? I guess it started on Twitter. I'm assuming. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, it's kind of before my time. This is the official recorded history of Cogsci-Sci. Essentially, uh, a group of um, science teachers started. Um, uh, talking about ideas towards cognitive science and implementing them in the classroom on Twitter. And they essentially then set up an, an, a Google group that allowed people to email each other. Um, so some of the people that were in that initial group um, were Adam Boxer, Nikki Kaiser, um, Ruth Ashby, uh, and many, many more. But people that are, have gone on to be quite influential in the world of science education, I would say. Um, and so they managed to essentially grow from a group of eight people that were discussing things. And last time I checked, I think the, the Google group has about 1,500 members on it that are kind of around the world. And some of them are academics and some of them are, you know, NQTs and some of them are teachers. And there's a few people that work for, you know, kind of government agencies around the world or advisory bodies and things like that that find it interesting. Um, but really, it's now just growing into a kind of grassroots organization that tries its best to give the best advice it can on how to apply some of the ideas of cognitive science to science education. Um, it's a privilege for me to run it. I run it because I'm willing to find the time for it. It's not something that is um, paid or, you know, it's not that I got voted in or anything. It was just someone needed to run it and... Uh, I was willing to do it and I'm really grateful to the people that kind of stand aside beside me and kind of give their free time. So when we put on our annual conference, um, you know, lots of people give up their time and energy to kind of help us do that and schools offer their facilities for free. And um, we managed to put on you know, a really, really good conference that is both highly accessible from a cost point of view and because it's fully remote as well, hopefully accessible to people around the world and things like that. Um, and it's just kind of grown from strength to strength over the last couple of years and become hopefully something that has given, you know, trainee science teachers a much smoother learning curve than we had kind of 15, 20 years ago. Now I was going to, links perfectly to my next question, because I was going to ask you, um, you don't have to name uh, who's providing your training in your area or, uh, or how it works uh, where you are particularly, but do you feel that, uh, and from what you hear from other teachers, I guess, uh, across the country is is the Cogsci-Sci approach or kind of the um, the more evidence-based learning, is that something that you think is being incorporated into many training courses for young, young or sorry, just new science teachers across the country? Or do you feel it's a bit patchy? Any, any thoughts on anything you've seen? Yeah, I can't comment on the national picture, I suppose. But what I can say is I work quite closely with the University of Brighton as in part of their certification. I consulted on the uh, Cogsci uh, kind of teaching aspect and one of the things that I thought was really good is the EEF really tried hard to just narrow it down to the most evidence-informed approaches so when you actually look at what they're advising it's very much about you know quizzing is learning type ideas and small steps it's not about kind of the more kind of avant-garde things like dual coding and, and things like this that maybe can be misconstrued it's very much the meat and potatoes I think there's probably still quite a lot of 
resentment in the ITT segment sector, I would think, because of the whole recertification process. I've not been privy to all the information, but I'd imagine any change with the way that change was delivered was not going to be received well, even if it was the best thing since sliced bread. I don't think necessarily um, it's made people that have been sharing their expertise with training teachers for maybe 10, 20, 30 years open to new ideas to kind of have it rammed down their throats the way it has been. But at the same time, we were finding when we were getting trainees from very different institutions that they had some strong misconceptions about you know, what makes good teaching nowadays and what we think is effective for our students and what they can and can't do in the classroom and things like this. So anything we can do to try and bring the two aligned so that the trainee teachers arrive in school to start their um, training year and, and they're already on the on the front foot in terms of what schools are trying to achieve, then that'll be really helpful. And what do you think in terms of... Um... The kind of things that people often talk about, so for example, things like comes to mind is things like ret- retrieval practice, which is obviously a good thing in terms of developing your knowledge. How much do you think it's made a difference in terms of the way assessments changed? Because when I was teaching, you had different years of different degrees of uh, you know coursework, ICES and plan coursework, etc. And now we've got a, a situation where we've got uh, obviously terminal exams and uh, the practical element is assessed through that. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of what people are talking about is, is a reflection of how the assessment is actually carried out in terms of do you think retrieval practice would have been a greater um you know idea people are talking about if the assessments hadn't changed the way they are anything any any thoughts about the way we especially looking at gcs well gcn level i suppose to a certain extent but um, any thoughts about the style of assessment and what teaching practices are you know become popular i suppose yeah, I see what you mean. So the idea we have linear assessments is a kind of lever for people to make students remember more. Mm. Kind of sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Because you think, what is the whole point of education if it's not to remember stuff? But, uh, you know, to a certain degree. And I know there are probably people yelling at the screen right now about meaning, making, enlightenment and all these other things, conceptual realisation. But actually, at the end of the day, there's a certain amount of facts that stick in people's heads and therefore they know things. I like to say to my students, if you memorise this or if you understand it, the examiner can't tell the difference on this particular question. So choose whichever way you is going to work for you for this particular question. That's fine. There are other things they can't do, but bloody, um, you know, some of the stuff they're asked to do at A-level chemistry is just simply much easier for them to learn it then um, first and then try and understand it afterwards than the other way around. I think if we were still in modular and things like that, I think retrieval practice would be even more powerful because we'd be retrieving for a shorter window so the um, kind of individual benefit of each quiz would be higher because you'd have less questions you could ask. You could ask them more frequently. So you'd actually get to a higher degree of fluency. You know, my my retrieval question bank for A-level is about three, uh, 600 questions or something like that. It's quite, it's quite large. Mm. So anytime you could narrow that because you had a modular test coming up and then never have to worry about that information again, that would be great for assessment. That'd be great for performance, but it'd be terrible for the students. Um, and even if we would go back towards kind of poorer defined curriculums, maybe some of the more skills-based curriculums of the of the kind of 2010s era, then actually what we found is students that knew more did better because they were able to understand the unfamiliar context they had gotten. So I'd like to think it would still have been relevant then. It just wasn't something that was prioritized, I suppose. Although the best teachers in my school when I was teaching back then 
were the old school teachers that had been teaching 30, 35 years. And what did they do each week? Spelling check, keyword definitions check. You know, they did kind of aspects of those those kind of quizzing things that have been around for eons, you know, and always been good practice. But we always think we're sometimes cleverer than that, I think. And um, it's really weird, I think, because people talk about, you know, are you a progressive teacher? Are you a trad teacher? Mm. And I like to think of it through a kind of evolutionary lens that if we kind of look back through the best teachers that have ever taught us, we can often see snippets of what we would consider good practice now, like really well-crafted explanations, really well-drawn diagrams that direct the student's attention. Like I can close my eyes and picture my physics teacher explaining to me how the concrete block inside thrust SSC has to move along the car as is accelerating because it's using up fuel. So it's changing its center of mass. And so therefore it needs to provide a moment to stop the car flipping. And I, I can, and it's just, it's a bit of acetate with a, with a, with a pen, but I can picture that fluently probably because he did it every chance he could get. Um, but also probably because it was delivered in a very, very, very simple and easy to understand way. But the knowledge was really fascinating. It didn't need to be dressed up to be interesting. Yeah, it's almost, um, I was thinking about um, uh, your example there, the acetate. Because I literally started teaching, and there, this was about maybe two years before whiteboards, interactive whiteboards came in. And I had an old school OHP projector where you obviously write on it. And it seems like we're going back to almost that storyboard explanation of the way things things happen which is actually quite a good way and obviously got the, uh, visualizers etc which is kind of the same thing as writing the acetate but you know just on white paper rather than the you know um the acetate with all your different color pens that went all over your hands but um it seems like we we went towards you know whiteboards information we had all this information on on the, on, the, on behind us but actually the kids didn't you know couldn't take it all in and and uh it, it was too. It was. It was too much. It didn't really. It didn't really help for for many years. So, so new technology sometimes doesn't really uh, help you as much in learning. And you know, obviously, people go back to mini whiteboards, as you said. And that is, you know, old old school. I suppose it's not. It's not high tech, but it's a really effective way in a way that schools are, you know, organised. And you can have an argument about, you know, schools in general. But you know, is a is a quick way if it's used effectively to to get feedback from, um, you know, your your, your students. So it's interesting how it kind of it, it does go around in circles, but hopefully a layer of understanding um, kind of sticks and, and maybe some things won't go away. Because if we if we find out that this is a really good way of explaining things or doing things and cognitive loads, it, I think it's a massive kind of um, positive thing to, 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 to come to keep in, come to teaching is um, some of those ideas will, will stick. And I guess you I mean, your role now, have you got a role in uh, teaching and learning in your school? Are you the lead in your school at the moment? Yeah, so my, my, I've got an unusual job title. My job is uh, I'm lead practitioner for whole school CPD. So basically, I'm not on the senior leadership team. I'm not responsible for teaching and learning, but I am responsible for all the training that actually gets done, if you see what I mean. So I quality assure our CPD. I provide a lot of CPD. I do a lot of coaching of heads of department, of new teachers, of all sorts of bits and bobs. Um, so it's, I'm very lucky. My school's been very, very supportive and kind of given me a dream job, I suppose, for want of a better phrase. And I had a question about that. So I wondered how you decide with, with that particular role in your school. Do you have any particular kind of strategy for, you know, how often you should visit lessons, how often you should be giving feedback to people, how often, you know, obviously you have the, 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 the coordinated, I guess, inset day sessions. Maybe they're set in stone anyway, so you can't do anything about those. But is there any particular way you think you use your time most effectively in terms of supporting teachers to get better 
at their craft. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so one of the things I've spent quite a lot of time doing over the last year is I've developed a bit of a system within our school that allows us to record lessons using video. Okay. Because one of the problems you have is as soon as you walk into the classroom, you change the classroom. There's a psychological concept called demand characteristics. And I find it quite a lot. So you'll walk into a lesson and it's they, people don't even know they're doing it, but they will. the teacher will, instead of teaching the lesson, they will kind of narrate what they are thinking about, you know, so that you are aware as the observer and they'll, they'll narrate what has just happened and they'll narrate what they're going to do and why they're going to do it and all these kind of things. Um, and so they tend up just uh, kind of being a little bit less authentic, not in a cynical way, but just because they want to make sure they're understood, you know, and they can get. So what we do instead is we've got a, a very, very cheap way of um, uh, securely recording um, lesson footage. And uh, I ask people just to record a section of their thing and send it to me. And then we'll meet up and have a conversation about it and kind of talk about what we've seen. And I found that's worked quite well, especially with teachers that are new to the profession. And therefore, um, sometimes they've never seen themselves teach. So actually showing them the video is, is more powerful. Uh, the systems can normally be really expensive. But if you've got um, Office 365 and, and a, and a, and a mobile phone with no sim card you can actually set up uh, quite an easy system i've got a blog on it on my um, website for schools just for a couple hundred quid you can get a system that will record and as much lesson footage as you want securely and be compliant with gdpr so how does because you talk about um getting i guess teach, teach permission because i assume that you don't or it's you know people teachers would feel kind of um watch too much i suppose if it was just a camera i guess was on all all, all the time i guess i assume so so you kind of a pre-agree um what bit of the lesson they'd like to show you um obviously you're not in the room so that helps in terms of but do they still kind of narrate even if they think oh uh, adam's gonna be watching this you know it's 10 o'clock on a tuesday um obviously you, you can't you know you, you can't do it unless you're monitoring it uh, without their consent which would not be would not be a good thing um how do they how do they take to that? So do you just kind of I say you just agree a time and say, right, I'm gonna do some you know, start, I'd like to get some give get some feedback on that, or you know, the way I show a practical or the way I um, you know, talk about verbs in French, wherever it might be, is that do you kind of agree a focus and then say, Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be looking or we're gonna be looking at that section of the lesson, you know, um, on such and such a date? Yeah, because my job is not the quality assurance aspect the heads of department do that with the kind of random drop-ins so i can work one-to-one -one with someone and we can just record the whole lesson and then afterwards i can say which bit of the lesson do you want to look at and so they'll identify a bit that maybe they thought went particularly well or maybe they've got a particular um target or something they're trying to work towards or they want to you know get an area they want to improve on but we'll just recover we'll record the whole thing and what happens is within about two or three minutes they forget the videos on because there's so many other things going on in a classroom. It's such a cognitively demanding space that the fact the camera's on just goes straight out the window for most people. Um, and what you tend to do is when you look at it is you can, they can, they can watch the whole video. You know, we, we send them a secure link. They can watch the whole video if they want to, or we can just meet and watch maybe a bit the beginning phase. Maybe if we're looking at routines, you know, or maybe we want to look at the, way they use a mini whiteboard. So we deliberately go to the section where there's mini whiteboards and we can talk about, you know, opportunities for them to have maybe taken a couple of wrong answers and brought them to the front, you know, and showed them to the class and get some kind of um, discussion or 
um, debate about why they're wrong, you know, or, or something like that. You know, just extra tips to kind of level up what would be a kind of a standard by the numbers mini whiteboard activity. Okay, so and kind of a, a, a good discussion, and um, I guess um, in a sense, and not, not no judgment in a sense. We've got moved away from judgment, you know, specific judgments of of, of lessons, and, and that's the way that you know people tend to develop. I was going to ask you a question about behaviour actually, because. Obviously, behaviour in in schools is always a hot topic, and it's, it's the one thing that um, new teachers often talk about, and even old teach, older teachers talk about as well in terms of behaviour. Um, what do you think about um, behaviour in schools? Do you think you can ever have um, good learning in a classroom if the the behaviour culture in the school is not very good? Just want a better, 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 better um, phrase. Um, what's your experience of that? Yeah, I think so. I think going back through my years, I can think of teachers that taught in schools with poor behavior systems that were incredibly strong. Sometimes they had an advantage of high status. For example, maybe they would have been an assistant head teacher or a head of year maybe or something. So they had kind of that. Um, but it was the old phrase, uh, good teachers make their own weather, isn't it? You know, you don't, <laughs> you don't wait for the weather to tell you how the kids control. You control the climate in your classroom. Um, it's just so much easier to do it when your school has good systems in place because you don't have to put in the discretionary effort to establish all the cultural norms. But I've, I've seen it done. It's just, you know, the people that can do it are really tired, basically, because they have to work very, very hard to maintain it. It requires a lot of uphill um, work. But, yes, it is possible. It's possible, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting because when I reflect in the, in, the, in the schools I taught in, the um, what I found, actually, is the bigger schools have better systems than the smaller schools that you think would be easier to manage i suppose but actually i think in bigger schools you have to have those systems in place so uh, overall it would uh it seems more kind of organized on, on that on that front and it was more um less decisions made by the teaching in a sense but um obviously all schools are different of course all senior leaders uh, are different as well in terms of the way that the school is managed but um the other thing i was going to ask you was um thinking about your thinking about that role of you know middle leadership senior leadership um, I often think um, that middle leadership is, uh, in funny ways, harder than senior leadership in some ways. Any thoughts? Because you've written a book about uh, middle leadership. Um, what are your, your general thoughts about your role? And I guess we we write in that book as a middle leader, as a head of department, or we talk about middle leadership in a kind of pastoral way. What, what, was, what angle were you, were you coming from? I think I predominantly wrote, I mean, the, the book is deliberately... Uh, has aspects that would be useful for primary, secondary, pastoral subject. But I think because of the weight that schools invest in subject middle leadership and the fact that that was my lived experience at the time because I was a head of science for about eight years uh, and I, I wrote the book in, in the middle of that process and, you know, surprise, surprise, like everyone that wrote a book, it was a pandemic and uh, there wasn't many other things to do. And um, it gave us the kind of space to maybe think about things in a little bit more detail. But yeah, I, I definitely thought about it predominantly from a from a subject middle leadership point of view because I think that is that is the hardest job I would imagine. I've spent some time in SLT, a couple of years, um, but my time running the department was harder. You know, for want of a better phrase, it, you get it from both ends. You know, um, yeah. you kind <laughs> of stuff coming down to you and stuff coming up, and so it becomes a bit of a pinch point if you're not careful. And you also have a huge amount of responsibility to kind of make massive decisions 
and you're sometimes only playing with half the deck because you don't have all the contextual issues of the whole school to kind of inform your decisions. You have to try and fit your decisions within a kind of pre-agreed framework of what the vision of the school is going to be. You know, if you want to make some changes in the classroom, the way that science is taught, for example, well, how does that interact with the school's teaching and learning philosophy? You want to do homework a certain way? Well, how does that interact with the school's vision of what homework should be, you know, and all these kind of things. So there can be quite a lot of navigation to be done in kind of finding your optimal path for your subject through the through the kind of conditions of your school. Lots and lots of lots of challenges. And at the moment, like all, all times in kind of education history, there's, there's, there's always change afoot. But, you know, you've, you've had a, a great, you know, for, for an old, old phrase, being at the chalk face for um, a decent amount of time, seeing those changes. What kind of things are you, I guess, looking forward to, looking excited about or how science education may change? Obviously, a lot of people talk about AI these days in terms of chat's going to change everything. Um, but are there any kind of hopes for the future that you would like to see in let's say in 10 years time if i came back to speak to you what would you have liked to have seen that's different in schools and that we were currently not getting quite right at the moment i think there's things i'm nervous about first of all like i'm very very nervous about some of the possible policy changes that could happen after the general election i do think there are some good stuff that's been done like for example i teach a year seven fourth set i want to do a mental maths problem with them i want them to do a calculation with calculating weight or something their fluency in their times tables is fantastic and the confidence they get from that they're just like that's easy so why are you making me get a calculator <laughs> and you know these are students that are uh find school quite difficult but they have that level of fluency their reading is better than it was uh you know a long time ago so i, I do owe them some credit i'm a big fan of knowledge rich curriculums although i do think the current science specifications math specifications and that are kind of a bit crazy they're a bit massive you know um and so hopefully there would be a time in 10 years time where we've managed to be a bit more joined up with our progression from key stage two, three to four. So there'll be less overlap. And we'd had a bit more of a structured debate about actually what we think the most important thing students need in their science education, because we can't teach them all the important things in science unless they mandate that we get a certain X amount of hours in the school day just to science. There's no, there's no point just cramming them all in and getting a superficial understanding. It would be better to maybe pick and choose some bits, bring sustainability back forward, you know, so it kind of weaves through the whole of the thing. And with a, I heard a phrase the other day, um, eco-optimism or whatever. So more information to the students about the successes that have happened in combating climate change. So lessons don't become doom and gloom. There's no hope. You know, we have to make all these changes. Aren't we bad people? Because actually some really nice, you know, data and stories that have come out about how, you know, countries have shifted towards renewables and how that saved money and also carbon and things like this. So I'd hope that we had a streamlined, knowledge rich curriculum that was built towards a sustainable future, I think. And how does that Key Stage 4 kind of course look? Because there's a bit of a debate at the moment about the, the merits of triple science v double, uh, you know, combined science and whether that should um, uh, carry on in, in its same, in the, in the same way, I guess. Is there any, any thoughts on that, whether you are kind of, you know, pro triple science or, um, or, 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 or kind of, you sit on the fence on that one? <laughs> um, I've always, always in my time offered triple science as an option. I think the problem we have at the moment is 
the combined science is uh, you know very very good that's not a problem i suppose per se but what does the triple actually provide that makes a difference to a student i think as a parent if um if i'm lucky my daughter's secondary school will offer nine gcse's you know my wife took 14 gcse's or whatever because it was at the time when there were gcse's were easier and you did more of them and you did you know she did one at lunchtime and things like that you know bit of a nerd but anyway um if we're only going to offer nine gcse's or if we're only going to offer eight gcse's that some schools do because it's called progress eight so that's obviously instantly where all schools drop <laughs> down to um because you know they want to make sure their students get the best grades possible and they want to make sure the students get the best grades for the school possible and I, I get that but there's a certain argument to be made for kind of breadth of education as well so i feel like if i was advising a child and they're a capable child and they want to go and they want to maybe study science but they're also interested in music and they're also interested in art and things like this should i really tell them to do triple science and not take art GCSE because they've only got three options and they have to do an MFL and they have to do a geography and history, you know, and they have to do this and they have to do that to be EBAC compliant. So for me, triple science becomes in some ways a luxury item. Now in our school, sometimes we recruit really high in triple science this year. We've got, I think in starting in year 10 next year, we've got 48 kids doing triple science of a cohort of 300. So that's like a big, it's a good recruitment, two classes, uh, really big numbers. And so it's doing well. But the year before, uh, we just had one class, you know, so we have it as kind of a a structured option. So not everyone can take it because it's not appropriate necessarily for everyone to have, you know, that lack of diversity in their curriculum. Um, but some students, you know, if they're in the top kind of 80 of the year and they want to choose it as one of their uh, their options, they can use one of their options to choose that in my school at the moment. And I think that's probably where it sits at the moment as a kind of a, a a kind of advantage to those students that want to pursue science definitely, uh, and or hate their other subjects, whichever way you want to look at it. Yeah, no, it's quite interesting because I think that when you talk about things like obviously you know Progress Eight, um, its advantage maybe was that people weren't obsessed by in the old days uh, you know what the A to C was in, in the school or the A star yeah. to C etc. But now they've become obsessed by a different measure and i don't know how you can get away from from that that problem when you obviously what what gets uh managed gets measured or vice versa what gets measured gets managed etc um you know if you're as soon as you decide that and that is a metric in which a school is measured by its success i mean is there any can you see any way around that i mean there is progress say the best of a you know the best way it's not there's the best way to measure schools is there, is there any alternatives to that or do you think you know any thoughts on that I think it's interesting. I think Progress 8, when it came out, it was really... I re, I'm, I'm happy to be fact-checked on this by anyone that listens to this and wants to correct me, but I'm pretty sure when they did it the first time, they did it with um, one sort of algorithm, and, and it they did it, ran it through the league tables, and they found out, unfortunately, that loads of the highest-achieving schools weren't actually adding much progress to students um, because I think the big downside that Progress 8 has is it's not, it's not equally effective because there's more grades above the five than there is below the five by default high ability students are going to add more progress than low ability students and i think the idea of comparing every student to their starting point 
it's not perfect, but aggregation is your friend. If you're going to do anything on a national scale, you've got to choose some sort of measure in key stage two scores kind of makes sense for that because every student basically sits them. Um, but maybe the way we go about doing it, maybe maybe that's wrong. I don't know. I think we'll screw up any system we get given anyway because the stakes are so high in England. In other countries, you know, the stakes aren't, it's not people's careers on the line when um, a school has a dip in performance one year. Um, but in England, we, we love to torture our heads and, and, you know, run our schools through dirt as soon as they screw up and things like that. So it makes it quite a difficult profession because every year is win or go home. You know, it's either you're going to be successful or you're going to be out on your ear. Yeah, it's a bit like kind of premiership football managers attitude. Yeah. Um, so, so final question, really. Um, uh, I know that uh, people are mad on Twitter, but I was interested on your thoughts on I put there three books you think if you were uh, talking to a young person or, or just a new teacher, as I've said before, a new person thinking about giving teaching a go and which three books you think would prepare. I know there's no, nothing like preparing actually teaching a lesson in a school, but is there kind of uh, three books you would recommend someone dig into before they started a teacher training course um, and embarked on their, their journey of uh, teaching? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, this is quite easy, actually. I think the general catch-all book is uh, Daniel T. Willingham's Why Students Don't Like School. Okay. Why Don't Students Like School, whichever way it is. It's kind of a really good introduction to um, cognitive science from one of the leading researchers in the field. Really well explained. Very funny. Really, really nice book. If it's a science trainee, then it has to be Teaching Secondary Science, A Complete Guide by Adam Boxer. It's pound for pound how to teach science. It really well exemplified. Massive book. Great value for money. You know, if, you've, if you're a student and you've got um, like a rat infestation, that book will take care of that problem as well at the same time. Very heavy. <laughs> um, and um, the third book, because most people are worried about um, behavior, classroom behavior, uh, Run in the Room by Tom Bennett is a fantastic book on behavior. I'm just rereading it at the moment, preparing for a research ed talk that I'm giving in September. Um, and it's just full of really, really, really good practical advice um, for kind of new teachers. I think there's two editions as well, actually, for the record. So there's technically four books I've recommended there, I think. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Um, I don't want to take any more of your time. I'm sure you've got some uh, more important writing and uh, stuff to do, Adam. But I uh, appreciate you joining me on the podcast this afternoon. And I wish you all the best for maybe this, by this time comes out, maybe the new term will have started, but best of, best of luck for the 2023-2024 academic season. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Adam's experience of working in schools over the past two decades, and crucially how the ideas around pedagogy have made some seismic shifts during that time. Who's next on the podcast? I hear you cry. Well, to be honest, I've totally forgotten. But to make sure you don't miss another episode, make sure you subscribe to View from the Lab from wherever you get your podcasts from. Goodbye for now, and I'll see you on the next one.